Peter chapter 1. So last week we began this book, and, and in it, Peter has, he's writing essentially his last letter to the church. He, he's not writing to a church, he's writing to the church, whoever's going to read this. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ, he's writing to them. And so as you go through these passages with me today, I want to point out the fact that he's not speaking to unbelievers, he's speaking to believers. I think oftentimes we want to use the Bible to try to convict those that don't know the Lord, and I think that that's important. But unless it's impacted us first, we can never have an impact on those that don't know the Lord. And so um, let's pray for the Lord's help to understand what God has for us this morning. Father, thank you for your holy word. Thank you for breathing life into men and women in the past who have lived this life that we're called to, to be holy, to be separated, to be different, to be not influenced any longer by the world, but instead to be influencers, if that's a word, influencers of the world. Father, too often we've allowed ourselves to be influenced by the ways of the world rather than being, letting the Holy Spirit transform us by the renewing of our minds and so forth. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness in that. We ask that you would instruct us in righteousness, that you would instruct us in the way to follow you. And Father, that you would set us free so that we can ultimately live for you with our lives and bring you glory. Thank you for this opportunity for you to speak to us. And I pray, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit would say. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Second Peter, we continue. Last week, we got uh, from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 11. And in those verses, uh, it's all about knowing Christ and growing in your relationship with Christ. That's what sums up all of Christianity. Uh, Jesus was spoken to by a, uh, by a Pharisee, uh, by a lawyer, by a scribe, somebody that was religious in his days. And they said, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And what he was really asking is, what are we supposed to do? And, and so oftentimes we can kind of relate to that. But Jesus' answer wasn't so much about what he was supposed to do. It was about who he was supposed to be. He says, what, what, what are the most important rules? And basically, Jesus responded by saying, love the Lord your God. First and foremost, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then what? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so if that's the case, and that's the most important, that sums up all of the law and the prophets. The the entire Old Testament could be summed up in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like you already love yourself. That sums it up. We can close it. Let's go to the sizzler, you know. Let's head out the door and go to the buffet because if we could just grasp that that is all of the Bible is teaching us, we should love God supremely, first and foremost, with all of our being, with our strength, with the resources he provides for us, with our minds. What what do we dedicate our thoughts to? And with our strength, what do we put our efforts into? The rest of it really is not really that important. Because if you go to church every week, if you pray every day, if you follow all of the commandments and yet you don't know God, it's all pointless. Because Jesus came to us so we could know him. And so in chapter 1, 
Christianity starts and continues with individuals who know Jesus and make him known in the world. Our privilege is to introduce a Christ-rejecting world. That's the world we live in. They reject Christ and say, I got my own thing. I'm good. I don't need religion. But the reality is we have the privilege of introducing the real Jesus to a real lost world. So his power in chapter 1, let's see, uh, his power, according to verse 3, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus who called us by glory and virtue. So we've been not only given a commandment and a charge to go out and make disciples and to make Jesus known and to know him, but then he says he's given us all things by his divine power so that we can know him and all things that we'll need that pertain to this life and godliness. Now, is he talking about just this life? Is he talking about the life that you and I are living in right now? Yes. But is he talking about life eternally? Yes. All things that pertain to life and not death. This week I've been thinking about death. been dealing with death a lot. Uh, Jesse's family has just lost two loved ones in their family within 12 hours. I think within eight hours. But the reality is, why is this, there's, there's this longing in our hearts? Why does life seem so short? Why do we even have an expectation that life should be a certain length? This is the first time I've been living. I don't know about you guys. We only live one time. So when people say, why is life so short? Why is there even an expectation that life would be any length? I think it's because we were never meant to die. That life is actually not about being born, but it's about living with God for eternity. That was the point in the garden. We were designed to live with God in fellowship with him, unhindered by sin for eternity. Who messed that up? We did. Adam and Eve, the the best of the best, the first creation. They they were in the garden with God. They had fellowship with him in the cool of the morning. They They weren't stressed out about anything. And they were walking with him in fellowship, just them and the Lord all the time. And then they were tempted to sin. And the desire they had to be uh, self-sufficient, which I think is in all of us, they gave over to that desire and that temptation, met with desire and conceived sin, which brought forth death. And from that point on, we struggled trying to fill that void and that relationship we used to have with God. And it's written on our hearts that life wasn't supposed to be short. And so all that to say that life he's talking about is an eternal life. But Peter says in verse 5, he says, For this very reason, give all diligence to add to your faith virtue and virtue, knowledge and knowledge, self-control and self-control, perseverance and to perseverance, godliness. Add to godliness, brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, love. He says, for if these things are yours and they abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not just knowing God, but pursuing him and the things that he would have you do. So he says, essentially, grow in the knowledge of Jesus and start applying 
what you learn about Jesus. Get about doing what he does, because what did he say he lived to do? The will of the Father. He does whatever the Father desires him to do. And this is what will make you a fruitful Christian that glorifies God. So many times, and I think I said this last week, I asked the question, how can I be sure that Jesus saved me and made me new and I'm actually a believer? Well, Peter says, if you want to make sure that you have a, a fruitful and, and a uh, God-glorifying life, he says this, then you need to grow in the knowledge and start applying it to your life. And if you're not doing that, then I don't know that you have assurance. But if you know Jesus, you're going to want to do what Jesus does. So that's the way that you can be sure. And it might seem like circular reasoning, but how do I know if I know God? If I'm interested in what God is doing and I'm getting involved in it. That's how you know if you know God. Because when you know people, you get interested in what they're doing and you want to help them do it. You want to be about their business. It, it, you grow in that. And so um, I don't know if I made my point in that, but I want to say this. You will be diligent to do what helps your faith in Jesus grow if you know Jesus. You will be diligent to do what helps your faith grow if you know Jesus. And so strengthening yourself in him so you don't stumble. And I referenced John last week where he talks about abiding in the vine, abiding in Jesus, remaining attached to the vine so that what comes through to you from him will cause growth. But here's the deal. Um, if you don't, 1 Peter chapter 2 says this in verse 7, Therefore, to you who believe, Jesus is precious. But to those who are disobedient, this stone, Jesus Christ, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because uh, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. So as you are obedient to the world, word, and as you submit yourself to God's word, here's what's going to happen. What Jesus tells you, what he shows you about himself, if you don't know him, it's going to be a stumbling block for you. It's going to push you away from him. But if you do know Jesus and you read his word and his word convicts you, it's going to draw you closer to him and it will more likely establish you in the faith. It'll cause you to see once again what the Bible tells us about our own wicked hearts, that we're sinful and God is holy and that he's wanting to make us holy. And he will do that if we are willing to let him. So that said, Peter goes on in verse 12 and he says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Now, what things is he reminding us of? Well, verse 3 says that God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've been given everything we need to grow as believers and be fruitful. And Peter says, I'm not going to be negligent to remind you of that. 
Um, he then says that as we add to our faith, um, you will not be lacking in faith. You'll actually grow, and you won't walk as someone who only thinks about the moment. You'll think about eternity as you make decisions in your life. So he says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are already established in this present truth. So he says, I'm going to remind you of this, even though you already know about it. How many times do you hear somebody tell you something and go, I already know that. Why are you telling me that again? It's kind of annoying, right? I'm the type of guy that doesn't rewatch movies, if I can help it. Now, I've got kids, so that's out the window. I've seen every movie they love 100 million times. That might be a hyperbole. But the reality is, I don't like to watch movies again because I've already seen it. Yeah, I already saw that. Let's not watch it again. Let's watch something else. I'm the same way with learning. I get annoyed when someone teaches me the same thing again. My dad used to repeat himself and still does constantly. Drove me nuts. But now as I read what Peter's writing here, they're not trying to be annoying. They're not trying to, they know they're repeating themselves. They're doing it on purpose. They're not old and they forgot. They're telling you again because either, number one, they really want you to know or because you're not doing it. Like, yes, I know that you know it, but you're not doing it. Therefore, I'm going to repeat it until you do it. Okay? Clean your stinking room. I know I'm supposed to clean it. Really? There's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge says, I know. Wisdom says, I did it. Because I want the privilege of the consequence of doing the right thing. So Peter, you know, the first rule of teaching, and I was talking to Dana about this this morning, first rule of teaching is teach something and then teach it again and then teach it again and then test time's coming up, review and then teach it again and then give opportunity to apply it, right? But so often in our Christianity, as believers, we hear the same old thing again and we go, yep, heard that. Yep, heard that. I can skip next week because I've already read that chapter, you know. But the reality is we need constantly reminded because we forget. Have you ever read the Old Testament and seen the things that God did for the Israelites and go, and now they're sinning again? Now they're grumbling and complaining? Why? Because believe it or not, apparently the human brain is so tainted by sin that we can forget that God parted an entire sea And our entire nation walked across the bottom of the sea. They were delivered from the Egyptians, even though the Pharaoh said no nine times. And God wrought all of these miracles to judge the Egyptians, brought us out, gave us all of their gold as we walked out. And then we get out in the wilderness. This is what happened to them. They get in the wilderness. God says, I'm going to give you this land. I promised it to Abraham. I promised it to Isaac. I promised it to Jacob. I foretold them that you'd be in Egypt for 400 years. It happened. And then I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you from your bondage of slavery. He takes them across the Red Sea. He takes them into the wilderness. It's an 11-day journey that takes them 40 years because of disobedience. And then at the end, they start in the middle of it, just in the very beginnings in Numbers. Read it. They go, what is this food? What is this manna? God miraculously dropped bread on the ground every day. They just had to gather it and eat it. 
and live. They never got gout. They never got scurvy from not getting the right vitamins. It was everything they needed. And they go, yeah, but where's the meat? Where's the leeks and the onions? Did you just bring us out? They were grumbling against God. You brought us out in this land for us to die. And Moses even gets frustrated with them. Like, don't you remember? We crossed the sea. And yet they grumbled and complained and said, did you bring us out here to die? They forgot. They forgot miracles. So if you've ever thought, if only God would show me a miracle, then I would believe and walk with them all the days of my life, I'm going to call you a liar. Because they saw deliverances that none of us have ever seen, and they forgot, and they forgot, and they grumbled, and they complained, and they struggled with faith, just like you and I do. You know, and so all that to say, Peter writes here, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know them, though you're established in these truths. I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, he says, to stir you up by reminding you. Again, the word remind. If you want to go through this little section here, underline the word remind. It's in there three times. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure you, excuse me, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he says, I'm currently reminding you, and I'm going to keep reminding you. And then before I die, I'm going to spend my last efforts making sure you always have a reminder of these things. Why? You're going to forget. Two, you need to remember this because you're going to be distracted from these facts that everything that you need has been given to you by God in knowing personally Jesus Christ. Struggling financially? Know Jesus. He may not give you, like, you know, some sort of financial plan, but he'll give you peace as you seek wisdom and as you look for opportunities. And as you're seeking his will, you'll know that he is good, that he gave his own blood, that he gave his body so you could be saved. If he saved you, he's made you his own, and now he's going to take care of you, your children, your finances, college futures, whatever it is you stress about. He's going to take care of it. Trust him, but you can't trust someone you don't know. So he says, I'm going to spend my life making sure that you have reminders of these truths. He wants us to be established. He wants our lives to be unshakable. And the reality is, I think most Christians walk around being just as shaken as the rest of the world because we don't know Jesus as intimately as he wants to reveal himself to us. And it's not because he's not revealing himself. It's because we aren't interested. We got the Netflix. We got the internets. We got the Facebooks. We got the Walmarts. We got school. We got, we, I mean, you could add up the list and no doubt more than most, we've got enough excuses to say, I don't have time. But the reality is all of these things are not bad. But when they become number one or even any measure of priority over knowing Jesus, they are going to make us driven and scattered by the wind. 
we will be shaken because all of those things, though good, can be taken from us. And if our hope's in them, we are going to be really caught up in despair and disappointment. We'll start to question, does God really love me if he's not taking care of this? Because we've taken our eyes off of him and put it on other things. And so he goes on to remind them that the thing that he's reminding them about is not some sort of fable. It's not like the myths that were in Greco-Roman society. It's not like uh, any other religion because he says in verse 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the, the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter wants to express to them the authority that I have to tell you these things and let you know you can establish your life upon them is not based on a feeling. We as a society trust our feelings all the time. And it's why we're depressed. It's why we're overwhelmed. It's why we're so wishy-washy and uncommittal. But the reality is, Peter's saying to them, the gospel that I proclaim, the, the God that I trust in, he didn't give me a warm and fuzzy and make the hair stand up on the back of my neck, and that's why I trust him. He didn't give me this awesome worship experience with smoke and lights, although those are pretty awesome. He didn't, the, the God that we worship revealed himself. He took on human flesh. He walked amongst us. He didn't have a place to live. He gave up the comfort and the presence of his father to be down here with us who primarily rejected him wholeheartedly. The people that were supposed to know him rejected him. They said, you're not God. Can you imagine how disappointing that would be? The nation that you spent thousands of years building you get there and they're like, they got no room for you to be born, let alone to let you speak. And when you do speak from God's word, when in Luke chapter four, he opens up the scrolls of Isaiah, he reads them and says, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. You know what the response was? Blasphemer. And then they tried to push him off of a cliff. Literally. They took him out to a precipice, the old King James says, and tried to shove him off. So that he like did this duck and weave move, I guess. And he like came through the crowd and they didn't even know it. And they're like, where'd he go? He, he, it wasn't his time, right? And so my point is, is that Peter says, the faith that I have is based upon facts. The faith that I have is based upon the Old Testament scriptures. But he says this, I, I saw the excellent glory. Now, what's he talking about there? He's talking about a real incident that took place. And if you look, um, I have written down here somewhere, even though I've gotten lost in my notes. Uh, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 9. I'm going to go to Mark's because I like, um, let's go to Luke chapter 9, sorry. See, wishy-washy, right there. Luke chapter 9. I want you to notice that this eyewitness account 
of Jesus going to what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, it wasn't just in one of the Gospels. It was in three of them. Now, Peter, James, and John were taken up with him to a mountain, and as they were up there, they saw Jesus in his glory. And it says there in Luke chapter 9, verse 28, It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. Now, what did he say right before that? In verse 27, Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see the kingdom of God around here yet. I don't see Jesus sitting on the throne. I don't see all of us bowing down and worshiping for eternity. What I see right now is the world that Satan is still in control of. So what was he talking about here? Those guys all died, by the way. They're dead now. So the kingdom of God was coming, and John the Baptist announced it. Jesus announced it. So what's he talking about when he says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Well, what we're getting ready to read, I believe, is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. They weren't just seeing some vision. They were seeing what the kingdom of God would be like. They're seeing some things that it would look like. So in verse 28, it came to pass about eight days after these sayings. So I, I bet by that, the time they see this eight days later, they've already forgotten. He said that, by the way. And he says, it says there that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. My daughter would love it. It probably sparkled, except without that glitter that gets all over the carpet. And it says, as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. Mark's account said that it became so white, whiter than any launderer could get it. It was way better than shouted out. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were actually having a conversation. They were interacting. Now imagine, if you will, Elijah and Moses getting to talk to God himself in the person of Jesus, probably like they wished they could have when they were walking by faith in the Old Testament. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Apparently, this was a common theme for them. They were overwhelmed, and it says that they were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yes, it is. That's why I brought you here. Um. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. That's interesting because there was a conversation that took place in um, one of the locations, uh, Caesarea Philippi, where actually Jesus said, who do, you tell, who do people say that I am? And some of them thought he was Elijah. Some of them thought that he was Moses. Some of them thought that he was one of the prophets. Okay. So in this case, it points out that Peter thought the same thing, that he was equal with Elijah and Moses, like he was another prophet. 
And what happens in this moment is that Peter says what's on his heart. And oftentimes we kind of slam Peter and go, man, what a goofball. He just says everything comes to his mind. But what I like about Peter is that he was honest. He didn't try to hide that he was weak in faith and that he didn't understand. He just let his understandings flow. And there's been many times on Sunday mornings where somebody spoke up in the middle of my message and go, what do you mean by that? And a lot of time in church culture, we go, well, you can't speak during that. And I'm not encouraging it all the time, but I am pointing out the fact that some of the best questions we would call dumb questions. But the only dumb question is the one you don't ask. Because if you got the question, the answer is available. God's given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Ask questions. There is stuff that all of us don't know. And if we did, he would have already taken us home. So in this case, Peter speaks out and says kind of what the other guys probably thought was dumb, and he gets an answer from the Father. God the Father speaks out of heaven to Peter. And he says this, uh, he says in verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came, overshadowed them, and they were fearful when they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying this, is my beloved son. Did he just say that? No, he also gave instruction. He said, this is my son. I love him. I'm pleased in him. And then he says, listen to him. Now, I think there is a a part of that where he's saying, Peter, be quiet. But I think there's also a part where he's not just saying this. He's telling him, this isn't just a prophet. This is my son. He's me. He and I are one. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things that had happened. Jesus actually instructs them, don't tell anybody what you've seen. In the other accounts, in Matthew and Mark, he says, don't tell anybody what you've seen of this until I raise from the dead. So again, he's telling them, I'm going to raise from the dead, which implies I'm going to be killed. And Peter struggled with this through his entire life. And so back in Peter we see that these three accounts were, were not only testified by not just two witnesses, which the Old Testament says that anything is established by the testimony of two witnesses in court, in, in godliness. And so also these three accounts, which is a picture of the Trinity, which is the picture of perfection. We have these three accounts pointing out this prophetic word. And Peter again writes in verse 17, He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard his voice. We heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This memory is etched in Peter's mind. It's etched there. It's stuck. It can't go away. And he said, I'm going to remind you of it because this matters. This is the hinge point of history. So verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. Now, here's the thing. Experiences don't always mean reality. Experiences don't always help us get through to the next step. You can have a good worship experience. You can get the warm and fuzzies. And they can actually be driven by Satan. (laughs) 
Satan can come to you as an angel of light and reveal something to you that's not true, but man, it feels like it. So the first thing he says after saying this is a sign from God is he says this sign confirmed what the Old Testament prophets wrote about. Align your experiences and test them according to what the Word of God says and you'll know whether or not it's true. And that's important. That's why we spend so much time studying God's Word because if we don't, experiences will always kind of change the way we see things feelings, bad experiences. Uh, One of the things that comes to mind is one of the really prominent guys that was involved in Hillsong comes out and says, I no longer believe in Jesus. I'm I'm forsaking the faith. But what he said in there, and I thought it was very important, that's why I'm highlighting it, is he said, uh, preachers fall away and nobody talks about it. And he and, and he talks about all these experiences that he, he's come across. And those are the reasons that he leaves the faith. But if he even had a nominal reading of the word of God, he would see that all of these New Testament preachers wrote and said, there will come a time where there will be great apostasy. There will come a time when people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of others that they'll reject sound doctrine in order for an experience. And so if your trust is in experiences, if your trust is in a warm and fuzzy, if your trust is in a person, if your trust is in me, here's the deal. I'm fallible, but God's word is not. So anything that I teach you, anything that I say, it, it really needs to be tested according to the word of God. And so Peter writes here, he says, we have this prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to listen to as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. God's word is inspired. And Paul writes about that. He says, the word of God is living and active. That God inspired it. The word there is actually rhema in the Old Testament. It's the same word that when Adam and Eve were formed out of the dust, Adam was formed out of the dust. A piece of Adam was taken out by God and formed his wife out of his side. But when he breathed into Adam before Eve ever came to be, he breathed in there, it says, the breath of life. And the same word is there, rhema. So the only reason that the words in this book matter is because God inspired them. He gave life to them. And he still speaks to us through them. But you can't just interpret them based on what you think they mean. They have to agree with the rest of the word of God. This is Bible Study 101. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And, and oftentimes, we have so many resources. I'm guilty of this. I've got my Warren Wearsby. I've got my J. Vernon McGee. I've got these guys that I can listen to weekly that teach the Word of God. But the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Scripture interprets itself. And if you find a passage that doesn't agree with another passage, then you need to wrestle with it because they're both true. And they'll both help form your opinion of what they should mean. And so 
Peter is very intent upon this, and he wants them to have a reminder after he passes because he believes what Jesus said, that he's getting ready to put off the tent. What does he mean by that? Is he literally wearing a tent? No. Paul even wrote about his physical body, that it's a tent. What is a tent? Is it something that you live in permanently? Or is it something that's temporary? He said, my body is temporary. My body, once I die, is going to be put off. And then God's been building me a glorified body, just like the one that Jesus was living in when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he resurrects from the dead and he comes and meets the disciples, he has a glorified body. And his body will for all eternity bear the scars of his crucifixion, reminding us of his love for us. But, but within that, not only do we need the reminder, but we also need uh, to believe. And so um, all of Scripture proclaims one message, and that is the message of the gospel. And the reality is, is it's all about Jesus. I, I think that's interesting because this morning we're reading in Scripture, and there was a passage my wife was listening to the audio Bible from our Bible study together reading that we do over the course of two years. And in there, we're in Deuteronomy, I think. And uh, the, the passage was... Uh, when you have to go to the bathroom, go outside of the gate, take your trowel, dig a hole, and go there and then bury it. And you're like, what, in the, what am I supposed to gain spiritually from that? <laughs> right? Like, is he just teaching us how to deal with plumbing? You know, we don't dig a ditch anymore. We got pipes and we're very sophisticated. We got a pond somewhere where we can't smell it. Hopefully, if you haven't built a house or bought a house close to one. Um, But what are we supposed to gain from that? But in that passage, it says that this is important because the the Lord dwells among you. So in a way, it's saying, hey, he doesn't want to step in your stuff. But in another way, what it's to be a reminder of as you go outside the gate, outside of the, the city walls, is that even in your using the restroom, or the facilities, or the tree, you know, the third tree on the right, um, even in that act of using the restroom, it's a reminder to you as you do that, why am I doing this? Why, you know, can you imagine every time you walk out the gate, you're like, why do I have to go out, out here and do it? Like, we've got a spot where nobody ever uses. Well, the inconvenience of it reminds you that God is among you. God is among you. That's the message. We focus on the, the P-O-O-P, but the reality is, the message is, that the reminder is that God is dwelling among you. He's with you. And that message, that was foretaste of what was going to happen. Jesus came and lived among them. And now, the, the, the place that we live in, God is among us. He's tabernacled among us. He's made us his tabernacle. He dwells in you and I. And when we put off our tent, when we go to be with him, and he gives us the glorified body, we will all finally be assembled together without sin, away from sorrow, no more death, no more outside the gate, but we'll dwell together forever. 
and God will tabernacle among us. And I want you to go to one more scripture with me. In John chapter 1, Now, many of you that have maybe ever memorized Scripture, maybe you've memorized John chapter 1, but he says there, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, and it talks about John the Baptist. But in verse 10, he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. But here's here's the capstone verse I want you to focus on. Verse 14. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that word tent, that word tabernacle, that the word dwelt among us meant He came and tabernacled among us. And that tabernacling among us to us, now we realize that the light is good. It shines in our hearts. It reveals darkness. It, it keeps us from sin. He says in 1 John, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then the, you're justified and the blood of Jesus covers us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But here's the deal. He says here in verse 19 of 2 Peter 1, we have this prophetic word that you do well to heed, to listen to. He says, as a light that shines in a dark place. You need to heed it as a light that shines on you in your dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God wants to shine his light on your heart. Peter's reminding them of this. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. But here's the deal. If you've ever gone camping and you're out in the woods, I was in scouts, and you give those younger scouts a flashlight, what do they do with it the first time they turn it on? They shine it in somebody's eyes. And as an older scout, I was like, that is the most obnoxious thing ever, because I went to survival training. You shut off the light, and you can actually see eventually. And that's what we believe as Christians sometimes. I can still see, even though I'm not always subjecting myself to the light. And here's the deal. God's so gracious. He allows our eyes to slowly adjust to the darkness. But I think that there's many Christians even that have gotten so used to, hey, I can make it in the dark without a flashlight. I'm good. But here's the deal. (laughs) You think you can see. You can see shadows. You can see what looks like trees. Uh, But here's what happens is we walk long enough without a flashlight. We get pretty proud of ourselves. We start tripping and stumbling on things. And in the meantime, when someone shines a light on us, we realize we're stumbling on Jesus and the things that he's actually teaching us that we're supposed to be obedient to. 
It hurts because we thought we were doing pretty good. And he reminds us once again that that light that he's given us in the Holy Spirit is meant to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that didn't stop at salvation. That continues this day. That he is the light continuing to shine before us, revealing to us our own dark hearts so that we can once again go, Lord, I'm so thankful that my right standing with you doesn't have to do with me doing it all right. But at the same time, now that you've shown this to me, I repent of it. I confess that I need you still. And I want you to change my heart so that I can stop walking in darkness, even though I thought I was doing right. Humbling ourselves again so that we can continue to walk in fellowship with him. And so, Father, thank you for Peter's reminder. Thank you for his reminder that we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness in knowing Jesus. But I thank you also that he reminded us that this word that we've trusted and we've been established in, that we still need to subject ourselves to it. We still need to learn more. We still need to have that proper perspective that it gives us. Thank you that your word not only justifies us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness and that your blood makes us right with you so we can tabernacle and dwell with you and live in relationship with you, but I thank you that at the same time that that light is still showing us the areas that you want to conquer in our hearts. Lord, don't let us be overcome by the sin that we're not repenting of. Help us to repent afresh. Help us to again come to you and say, Lord, search me, know me, see if there be any wicked way within me, and teach me to repent and walk in faith again. And then I will teach others to walk in your ways as well. So Father, thank you for your patience. Thank you for your love that never casts us out or walks away. Lord, give us willing hearts to once again trust you and to continue this life of faith until it's over. Help us to finish well. Help us to run the race with endurance. And Lord, we trust you for it. We expect that you're going to meet us right here. We expect that during this week that you're going to reveal things that we didn't even realize were there. And I ask, Lord, that you give us the faith to once again trust you with our our weaknesses and say, Lord, I'm sorry, so that we can be renewed and continue to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.